Welcome. You are listening to a recording provided for the use of the blind and print impaired. Materials or items read on Airs LA are the copyright property of the original authors and publishers. No unauthorized use or duplication is permitted. I'm Ernesto Sambrano. Today's article is by Gabriela Paella from the April 2022 edition of GQ. Nick Cage can explain it all. Part 1. Please note, this is a men's magazine and as such may include offensive topics or language. He is one of our great actors, also one of our most inscrutable, most eccentric, and most misunderstood. But as Cage makes his case here, every extraordinary thing about his wild work in life actually makes perfect ordinary sense. Fifteen minutes from the Las Vegas Strip, into a tranquil, gated community, up a red brick driveway, past the palm trees that touch the Mojave Desert sky, through the veil that separates the astral plane, and here he is. The man they say gained and lost a $150 million fortune, who owned castles in Europe, and the most haunted house in America, and the Shah of Iran's Lamborghini, and two albino king cobras, and a rare two-headed snake, who had to return his prized dinosaur skull upon learning it was stolen from Mongolia, who went on an epic quest for the actual Holy Grail, and who, when his singular, fantastical life eventually comes to an end, will be laid to eternal rest in a colossal white pyramid tomb in New Orleans. Nicholas Cage greets me at his door, wearing a kung fu suit. This is my Wing Chun kung fu suit, he explains, waving me in and handing me a mug of coffee. I studied with my Sifu, Jim Lau, when I was 12 years old, because I was a big Bruce Lee fan, and so it's like my uniform to relax in. His voice is a low, contemplative drawl that imbues every word with a sense of philosophical magnitude. To hear Nicolas Cage state an opinion about his preferred loungewear is to hear anyone else reflect on the cosmos. I'm still decorating, so excuse me, he says, as we stroll through his home. An imposing mahogany cuckoo clock chimes on the half hour. Mighty bronze dragons guard the hall. Lacquered arms holding torches sprout from eggplant purple walls, lighting the way. Look down, and you have a Persian rug ripped out of a Lisa Frank coloring book. Look up. You have a crystal chandelier and an original Creature from the Black Lagoon poster. Straight ahead, a prince. Specifically, a huge photograph of prince roller skating in hot pants and a Batman tank top. At the heart of the house is a charcoal drawing of his late father, August Floyd Coppola, who looms over the fireplace and everything else. Cage moved into this place last summer, but settled in Vegas back in 2006. He came for the state taxes. There are none though he soon learned to love the small-town feel and the ability to drop off the radar. In some ways, he says, this move saved me. His best friend rests in a nearby chair, sizing me up. He has the regal bearing of an emperor, with an elegant mane of gray hair and wise golden eyes and a luxurious tail, and, okay, yes, he is a cat, a Maine coon named Merlin. He's so kind and so loving, Cage tells me, more than once. Sometimes he puts his arm around me when he's sleeping, and I think it's my wife, and I go, Oh, Rico, and then it's Merlin. The owner of his favorite local pet store died recently, so Cage scooped up some of the leftover animals stuck in limbo. A couple turtles, a fish with a bum eye that he felt bad for. They live in an array of aquariums lining his kitchen and bar counters. His Oscar is somewhere up there, too. My job is to care for them, make sure they're happy and safe. He says as we stop to watch a freshwater turtle wait around. Eventually, I'll have to donate him, like I donated my two-headed snake to the Autobahn Zoo. That snake came to him in a dream, or rather, he had been dreaming of two-headed eagles, and then the very next day, 
a guy called to sell him a two-headed snake for $80,000. After immediately taking him up on the offer, Cage learned that to feed it, he had to put a spatula between the heads to prevent them from fighting over their food, and this was way too much to handle. So the snake was rehomed to the zoo, where it only recently died at the ripe old age of 14. These moments can happen with Cage, when you suddenly find your spirit levitating an inch outside your body, while you're locked into a description of a situation that could not have happened to anyone else on the planet. And isn't this what I expected? That I would come to his enchanted lair and talk about the snakes and skulls and other oddities? Maybe getting injured by a samurai sword or something in the process. Though hopefully nothing too grievous, so I could still tell you about the snakes and skulls and other oddities. What I encountered instead was something more surprising. A human being who has some serious depths. Much of it public, much more of it not, and emerged with a new and better understanding of himself and his life. He has spent recent days this winter mostly inside, reading scripts and watching movies and preparing to welcome a baby with his wife of a year, Rico Shibata. They have names picked out already, Akira Francesco for a boy and Lennon Augie for a girl. Augie was my father's nickname and my uncle, the director Francis Ford Coppola, has decided to change his name to Francesco, he says, excitedly showing me the two-month ultrasound on his phone. I think it's so sweet. It's like a little edamame. A little bean. We will settle in his sitting room, where over many mugs of coffee, I will try to square the sensitive, self-aware person in front of me with the fairly ridiculous myth that exists in our culture's collective imagination. And he will, in turn, explain everything to me that is seemingly inexplicable about Nicolas Cage. First, though, I want to meet his talking crow. His name is Hugin, and Cage says it was love at first sight. He swoops around a massive geodesic dome, so we inch up to the edge and peer inside. Hugin has gleaming black feathers all over, except for his chest, which is an unexpected shock of pure white. He flies up to a perch, where he can scrutinize us at eye level. I hold my breath. Hugin, this is Gabriella, Cage says. Hi, Hugin says. In the sitting room, I see him clearly for the first time. He is 58 now, tall and still slender, with close-cropped dark hair. His face which we've watched in one form or another for practically his entire life, has been softened by age. It is a kaleidoscope, a minuscule change of expression or lighting, and one of his characters will jump out at you. The hot-headed, wooden-handed baker, Moonstruck. The alcoholic screenwriter scraping rock bottom, leaving Las Vegas. The burned-out paramedic, bringing out the dead. The affable ex-con, raising Arizona. The other affable ex-con, Con Air. The good cop, it could happen to you, the bad cop, bad lieutenant, port of call New Orleans. Both the villain and the hero, who have swapped faces with the aid of cutting-edge 90s super science, face-off, Charlie Kaufman, adaptation. Robust eyebrows frame the hardest-working pair of blue eyes in the business. There's a spiritual conflict in Nick's eyes and in his face, Martin Scorsese told me. It's visible, it's open, and it translates into an overall sense of unease. The conflict is an inner questioning. Will I be redeemed? Have I done enough? Redemption does seem to have arrived for Cage, at long last. After falling millions of dollars into debt, and then working tirelessly to dig himself out, he has made many movies, too many movies, that only reinforce the idea that Cage was maybe a little insane. And yet through the twelve years that followed the death of his beloved father, the turmoil of near bankruptcy, and the big studios turning their backs on him, Cage has stayed committed to delivering flashes of his highly personal brilliance in smaller projects. Like in 2018's Mandy, 
as a bereaved lumberjack in the woods who's lost everything he loves, or last year's pig, as a bereaved chef in the woods who's lost everything he loves. And in doing so, he's reminded people what they've always known. Nicolas Cage is one of our greatest actors. It is this moment and context into which past and present and real and fake will all collide in his new film, The Unbearable Weight of Massive Talent. In 2019, Cage received a letter from director Tom Gormican with a proposition. Gormican and writer Kevin Etten had just finished a screenplay they wanted Cage to consider. He would be playing a character named Nick Cage. This Nick Cage is a washed-up action star down on his luck who gets roped into a CIA plot to take down an international arms dealer. The film uses de-aging technology to also render Cage into a second character, a younger, wilder, uncannily smooth version of himself who goes by Nicky. Cage had some qualms about spelunking into his psyche for this. Tom always said the neurotic Nick Cage is the best Nick Cage, Cage tells me. I said, it's not all neurotic, Tom. I mean, I have very quiet moments at home, just sitting on a couch or looking at CNN or reading a Murakami book. He feared he would be making a joke out of himself, and he definitely didn't love that the character is a narcissist and aloof father. But he was ultimately intrigued by the chance to remind audiences of his comedy chops, and even signed on as a producer of the film, which will be distributed by Lionsgate. If the big studios no longer had faith in Nicolas Cage the actor, they apparently had it in spades for Nicolas Cage the persona. That persona has been with us since Cage's career began to accelerate in the late 80s and early 90s. It was, at first, a monster of his own making. Take the press tour for the 1990 David Lynch fever dream Wild at Heart, when Cage front handspringed and karate kicked his way into the British talk show Wogan, before fully peeling off his t-shirt and finishing the interview sweaty and bare-chested under his leather jacket. Terry Wogan's first question, Do you get carried away? In unbearable weight, Nicky is styled after that particular appearance. Nick would tell us, I look back and I hate that guy, Gormican said. Cage is a little more circumspect with me. It's more that he doesn't want to be that guy anymore. Hasn't wanted to since he had his first child at 26. Cage has two sons, Weston, 31, and Cal L, 16. I had some moments that I went off and did some wild stuff, but a lot of that was by design, he says. I think many people in the public got swept up with an idea of me being kind of a wild madman, which was fun in the beginning. But after Cage became one of the most bankable leading men from the mid-90s to the mid-zeros, he started to lose control of his persona. First there was YouTube, then one social media platform after another. When his career in finances started to suffer around 2010, the internet went into overdrive. His performances, which, while colorful, were at least mostly tuned to the movies they were in, were plucked out of context and spliced together into Nicolas Cage freakout montage, or 40 clips of Nicolas Cage screaming in one minute, or Nicolas Cage ultimate freakouts, uncensored version. Millions of views later, a life on screen was distilled into farce. He became something of a meme Ouroboros. The platforms would go out hunting for Nick Cage being outrageous, and they would find him, say talking about doing mushrooms with his cat on Letterman, or telling a reporter about the time he was stalked by a mime which would only make them want to go out hunting for Cage being even more outrageous. Mandy co-writer Aaron Stewart-Ahn told me a story about when they were filming in the Belgian woods in 2017. He had asked Cage what he had gotten up to over the weekend. Usually the answer was that the actor had stayed in watching esoteric world cinema, but in this case, Cage had flown to Kazakhstan for a film festival. A photo of Cage in traditional Kazakh dress ended up going viral, and then it was inserted into hundreds of other absurd contexts. Nick was like, 
Well, I went to Kazakhstan, and I became a fucking meme, Stuart On recalled. Then he says, Hey, why don't you take a picture of me right now, in this forest, with blood on my face? Post it online, and we'll make a real meme. Cage took umbrage when he first saw the photoshopping and the supercuts all those years ago, but then more or less came to accept it. You can't go against that which is, he says, shrugging. In all fairness, the internet lore has, in its own way, made him more beloved than ever. Seldom has an actor inspired such a rabid, reverent following. His fans worship at the altar of the r slash one true god subreddit and get his face tattooed on their bodies and attend day-long Nick Cage movie marathons, after which they go home to rest their weary heads on multiple versions of Nick Cage novelty sequin pillows. That doesn't mean he's entirely comfortable with where his public persona exists in 2022. For a while, Saturday Night Live had a recurring segment featuring Andy Samberg as a gleefully psychotic version of the actor. Cage gamely appeared alongside him in 2012, referencing National Treasure with the punchline. We're going to have a three-way with the Declaration of Independence. Now he says the show is asking him to host this spring, but he's not so sure. I feel like saying, well, why don't you call Andy Samberg? I mean, I hear he's available. I ask him if he sees unbearable weight as a chance to seize control over the memeified version of himself and get the last word. How could anything possibly top Nick Cage playing Nick Cage as the most Nick Cage thing to ever happen? There was an element of that in it. I think it was a way of embracing what had happened to me, he says. He even pushed the envelope further at times. In one scene, Cage's young and old make out with each other. That was Nick's idea, Gormican told me. He was supposed to kiss him on the cheek, and he was like, oh, I'd like to French kiss. But even if Cage has grown willing to participate in the fervor, much of it remains elusive to him. I still don't really fully understand what the fascination is with my face or facial expressions that happen in these memes he says. The studio is trying to push this promotional Walmart campaign around unbearable weight, he tells me, photoshopping his face on posters for other Lionsgate movies, from John Wick to Terminator 2. I'm like, well, but why? Cage says, just like, what is it? When he was five years old and still known as Nicholas Kim Coppola, Cage went to visit his composer grandfather, Carmine. He spotted a tray with a portrait painted on it and asked his grandfather who it was. Carmine said it was a composer named Beethoven, and I said, Oh, was he any good? Cage recalls. He said, Oh, he was about as good as I am. I went home and I told my father that. He was furious. Carmine may not have been Beethoven, but he went on to win the Oscar for the score to The Godfather Part II, which his son, Francis, directed, and his daughter, Talia Shire, starred in. As a kid, Cage horsed around on that set with his cousins. Cage came into the world in Long Beach, California, to this remarkably erudite and accomplished family that would indelibly shape and influence him, but no more than his father, August, a professor of comparative literature. He was always the smartest man in the room when he walked into any room, Cage says. He knew it, and he made sure we knew it. August spoon-fed his boy Fellini and German expressionist cinema while raising him and his two older brothers mostly alone. Cage's mother, a former dancer and choreographer named Joy Vogelsang, was institutionalized for schizophrenia and depression for much of his youth. His parents divorced when he was 12. Cage would watch his mother talk to the walls and absorb it as surrealistic inspiration. I could have gone the other way, he says. Instead, I looked at her and I thought, well, this is really interesting. If his father was responsible for fomenting a love of film, his uncle's stature in the industry exposed him to a fascinating new Hollywood milieu. Hanging out after a screening of Apocalypse Now, he found himself face-to-face -face with Dennis Hopper in a cowboy hat, 
asking Cage what kind of music he liked. I said, I like classical music. He said, Oh, you gotta listen to The Love for Three Oranges by Prokofiev, he says. He was so interested in me listening to that music. He also seemed very avuncular to me. Francis cast him in a few early roles, but wanting to shake off accusations of nepotism, Cage engaged in his first act of deliberate myth-making. He changed his last name, inspired by the avant-garde composer John Cage and the black superhero Luke Cage. As a young man, he had a particular notion of himself that he was determined to prove. That I had something, and it wasn't simply because I was born into a Coppola family. It was because I thought I had a unique way of feeling things and looking at things. He would go on to spend the next 40 years of his life on film sets. It can be hard to imagine any other reasonable outcome. Nick is a born actor, said Oliver Stone, who directed him in World Trade Center and Snowden. If he wasn't doing this, I don't know what he'd do. If Nick hadn't been a movie star, he would have been a president, his pig co-star Alex Wolf told me. He's just this magic orb that was supposed to do something magical. That brings us to the end of today's article. Nick Cage can explain it all. Part 1. If you want to learn more about Airs LA and the types of programs we offer, follow us by clicking on any of the social media links at the top of our webpages. If you like what you see or hear, please click the like button. This podcast is for the sole use of our blind, low vision, and print impaired listeners. Any unauthorized use is prohibited. I'm Ernesto Sambrano, and I'll be back soon with another article. Thanks for listening.